welcome back to Speaking of Gothic. I know I've been gone for a little bit um, for the Christmas holidays, and I put out bonus content episode number two, so I hope you enjoyed that. And prior to that, I did The Crow, and I know that was a a somber episode, so I'm going to try to keep it light this week. Um, And I'm going to talk about two of my very favorite movies, and... For this, and I'm not sure how many episodes I'm going to do this, but I'm going to dive into the 80s because, yeah, I'm old. So my formative years growing up watching horror movies was in the late 70s and early 80s, um, all throughout the 80s. So, of course, that's what sticks with me. But there are some really, really great horror movies. And I think the thing about horror movies in the 80s is that the practical effects were just on point. And there's two movies I want to talk about, which I which were on my list. If you remember my list way back in episode one, I talked about Fright Night from 1985 and Reanimator from 1985. Uh, and both of those movies, they, they came out in 1985. And, you know, I've seen them t- tons of times. But as I started preparing for this podcast and thinking about gothic horror in general, and then, you know, I went back and I started reassessing movies that I'd watched before and I was thinking, oh my goodness, that could actually be gothic horror as opposed to just horror, just a vampire movie or just a movie about this guy reanimating bodies. And what is what is also interesting is that this will touch on what Heather and I talked about. So this will kind of tie back into that. So without further ado, we're going to talk about Fright Night and Reanimator. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. So just to give you a, a tiny summary of both of the movies, or actually just to go back to what I said about both of these movies. Let's start with Reanimator. came out in 1985 and was directed by the late Stuart Gordon and produced by Brian Usna, who I just found out directed the sequel to this called Bride of Reanimator, which I also mentioned, I think, in the second part of my show with Heather, my episodes with Heather. I can't remember if it was the first part or second part. But uh, I didn't realize until just yesterday that he directed that that sequel. And at some point in time, I'll be talking about it. But it's starring Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, love Barbara Crampton, and Bruce Abbott. And the movie is based on an H.P. Lovecraft novelette. And it's, I said, I think my words were, it's baffling, fantastic, bloody, freaking awesome. Um, And it is a a really fabulous movie. Again, I'm not a Lovecraft fan. My brother, my older brother... Ron is into that, but shout out to you, Ron, because uh, if it wasn't for my older brother, I wouldn't know anything about horror movies or whatever. He was my gateway drug into horror movies. I shouldn't say drug, but you know what I mean. But anyway, uh, the other one is Fright Night, and I can't believe so many classic movies came out in 85. Uh, for Fright Night, it's a classic vampire movie. I mean, just classic. Directed by Tom Holland, and I don't know if you remember this, but I mentioned that Tom Holland actually directed the first Child's Play film, and he introduced introduced us to the horror icon Chucky. And Chucky, if you don't know, has his own show on, I don't know, USA Channel or Sci-Fi or something. Um, but I actually really love what he's done with what Don Mancini has actually done with Fright Night because I want to clear something up. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but because I'm going to talk about. Uh, probably the one of the Chucky movies and perhaps the series at some point in time. But just dipping into that, Tom Holland directed it, but Don Mancini is the writer-creator who, who thought up Chucky, and he, he wrote all the scripts for all the different Chucky movies that have come along. 
in, in addition to creating and producing the new TV series, which is season one and season two. But I'll talk about that on a further on, on another episode. Now, jumping back to Tom Holland, Tom Holland directed Fright Night, and the movie stars William William Ragsdale, Chris Sarandon, Roddy McDowell, Amanda Bierce, and Stephen Jeffries, and it is a classic. So, as always, I want to talk about the tropes and. I've been doing a lot of research about gothic horror, gothic romance, about the gothic in general. And probably as this podcast goes on and evolves, I'll have more to talk about in relation to the tropes and the different um, aspects of the gothic. Because I think when I'm looking at these movies, not all of them are going to be gothic horror, for instance. Some may be gothic romance, or some may be just gothic, like I mentioned with The Crow, because The Crow was not a horror movie. It was a gothic movie. So just kind of bear with me as I keep talking about this, because the more I learn, the more I read, the more I research, the more I educate myself, I'll be able to share that with you. But I want to dive back into the tropes as I've kind of established them with the previous episodes. We have the grotesque and or dark subject matter, the supernatural and or creatures, and this is not always, gothic environments, a sense of isolation or remoteness in a character's mind, suspense, mystery, tension, and fear, heightened or exaggerated emotions, women in distress or persons in distress, characters who possess some kind of psychic connection and or ability, not always, and gothic or formalized language, again, not always. So when I'm looking at these tropes in relation to any of the films I talk about, um, all the tropes may not be there. Some may be there, but I, I think as long as the majority of these tropes are there, I'm fine. And for me, I'm going to call that gothic. So you're going to kind of see me stretch and mold. And sometimes, yeah, I may I may fit the definition of gothic. You know, based on these tropes, I may say, you know, this is a gothic movie. Again, this is just my opinion. And, um, you know, you all may say, yeah, I don't know if I think that's gothic. I think I had one, my first review ever. And I don't know who, I forget who the person was that left me a review. Um, the person said that they weren't totally convinced of my explanation of the gothic, but they're willing to let me, you know, for, for me to try to uh, convince them. So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing this for you right there. I'm doing it for you. So anyway, now let's move on to Reanimator. I think we'll talk about that first. And I may go back and forth. We'll see. So without getting into heavy plot, and again, I'm not going to spoil anything for either one of these movies, but Reanimator is about a medical student who he discovers a serum, a way to reanimate dead bodies. Does this sound familiar? Because we just talked about this, uh, Heather and I did. And he enlists his roommate to do these experiments and of course everything goes sideways on them. And what I love about this movie is that um, I know it's a take on a HP Lovecraft uh, novel, novelette, novella, but what I, when I watch it, since I, since again, I'm not an HP Lovecraft fan, I wasn't thinking about HP Lovecraft. I was just thinking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I thought it was a very interesting take on the mad scientist who brings back a, a creation and then, the consequences and rep and repercussions of bringing that back. And just like all these films that I've talked about, that is the actually the grotesque and dark subject matter is the fact that he's bringing back reanimated corpses and these reanimated corpses that he brings back with the exception of one, they're not intelligent. They're basically mindless 
and they inflict a lot of violence. And there's not an aspect of the supernatural, although you'd think, well, he's bringing somebody back to life, so is that not supernatural? And they're not really creatures, so I'd say it's kind of in, in its own um, its own lane in terms of um, the subject matter is... I, it's not they're not even zombies so i'm gonna say they're reanimating corpses is kind of its own different thing um but i but for me it definitely fits a certain trope because there's tons of movies where they reanimate bodies or something comes back from the dead and the environment it all takes place at a medical school in a, a small fictional uh university called miskatonic university if i remember correctly and now i should have got that notion but again since i don't read hp lovecraft i didn't realize that that was right from his story um so of course now i go back i'm like oh yeah that makes sense but i I love the the university it it looks gothic and the majority a lot of the action takes place in a morgue and the morgue is always deserted except for like a security guard out outside and the two medical students in there i saw a movie called the autopsy of jane doe I think I saw that a couple of years ago. And that movie creeped me out. It was disturbing. It was a father-son uh, mortuary team. And these, this body comes in with no identification. And these strange things start happening as they're undergoing the autopsy. It's just the two of them. It's like a two-character chamber piece almost. And it was just super disturbing. I don't know why that movie... It's not one that I can watch again. It just felt so... It got under my skin. I can watch creature features all day long and slashers, and they don't bother me. I go to sleep like a baby. But that movie, for some reason, it just really got to me. Anyway, let me let me go back to the tropes. All right, so the gothic environment for Reanimator is the Miskatonic University and the morgue, I'd say. And there is a sense of isolation because these two characters, and then also uh, Dan is, is the, the roommate of Herbert West, and the character that Barbara Crampton plays, and I, I can't believe I don't remember her name right now. Um, you know, they're all pretty isolated. And there's a disgusting part of this movie, which is classic for those of us who've seen it, and I will not spoil it. But when I saw this at the theater, I just had to say, I was like, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, WTF. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I don't think I've ever seen a movie go where they were going with this one scene. If you know the scene I'm talking about, yeah, 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 it's crazy. It's crazy. Even now when I watch it, I'm like, oh, how did they get away with that? And did why did they want to do that? So anyway, watch it, and you're going to know what I'm talking about. And if you watch that scene and you want to chat with me about it, please leave some comments. Um, I created a... Oh, I don't know if I told you all this. I created a Facebook group called Gothic Speak and it should be in the description. There should be a link to it uh, in the show notes. So if you want to come in there and interact and chat about these movies or some other ideas that you have, please, please do that. Okay, let's go back to the tropes because I'm getting sideways on this. Uh, This movie is definitely filled with characters who have heightened or exaggerated emotions. It's almost melodramatic, but I think that's part of its charm. So it, so it, it kind of goes a little further than some movies, and everything is played up, like everything's dialed up to 10. But in the context of this story in Reanimator, I think it works. And in this film, um, there's persons in distress. At some point in time, 
Dan's girlfriend uh, is in distress, but I really think it's Dan that's in distress, and then Herbert West at certain times. So uh, that one, the jury's out on that one. I think there's there are multiple people that are in distress, which I think lends itself to why I say persons in distress, not women in distress. Uh, there's no psychic connection. Oh, wait a minute! I just thought about this. There is a reanimated character who does have a psychic connection with his own body. To say any more would be a spoiler, so I want to leave you with that. And then when you watch Reanimated, you're going to say, oh my gosh, you're right. I don't know why I just thought about this right now. I mean, I've seen the movie literally, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of times, probably over the course of my lifetime, or at least since 85 since it came out. And I just now figured out the psychic connection. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Uh, and there's no gothic language. The language might be formalized just in terms of when they're talking uh, because they're medical students. So they 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 kind of make it sound like they know what they're talking about in terms of science, even though I know it's pseudo fake science, you know, movie science. But it's it's still it's still interesting. But it's really not gothic language, I would say. Now, let me dive over to the polar opposite of Fright Night. Fright Night has to be my favorite. It's one of my favorite vampire movies. But it is also one of my favorite just overall horror movies. And as I rewatched it recently, I realized, oh man, this is gothic horror. Just like Reanimator and just like a lot of these other movies. And I don't know why I didn't figure that out. But Fright Night is definitely gothic horror. Um, there's a young man named Charlie Brewster who lives with his single mom. And he has a girlfriend named Amy. And he has a best friend named Ed. He calls him Evil Ed. He's just a regular kid, but he's a horror kid, and he watches this horror show called Fright Night. For those of you who don't know, there's probably going to be a lot of you, uh, but if you grew up in probably the 50s or the 60s or the 70s and then probably into the 80s, there were a lot of local television shows where they would show horror films, and there would always be a horror host. If you think of Elvira, um, uh, Cassandra Peterson, I believe is her name. Uh, her character, the Elvira, the Mistress of the Dark, like she would be a host and she would give commentary about the films that she was going to show. And then sometimes, you know, during the commercial breaks, they'd come back and then she would talk more about the show. And there was lots of these hosts all across the country. And um, in, in Texas, it was Project Terror. Um, so it was pretty interesting. But so Charlie is into these into these horror things, into these horror shows. And that was like, again, that was a big thing in, in the 80s and 70s. So he discovers that there is a real-life vampire living next door to him. So I watched this movie, and I think when I when it came out, I was about the same age as the protagonist. I mean, I think he's supposed to be like 18. He's in high school, something like that. And I think I was, I was 18 to 20. I was somewhere, but in that same sort of zone. So I really hadn't been out of high school that long. And, and I totally identify with it. Because, you know, if you're a horror kid, you're thinking... All right, what would I actually do? Okay, let me break. Yes, what would I actually do if there was a vampire next door or a monster next door? You know, you have all these scenarios of what you'd do or what you wouldn't do. So this movie kind of answers that question. And it's like, oh, well, I got a vampire next door and he's probably going to kick my butt. You know, uh, am I going to go over and try to stake him or am I going to do this and that? You know, and I think Charlie makes a lot of wrong decisions like outing the vampire to the police. I mean, I'm sorry, really. If you got a criminal living next door, you probably call the police on, but you have to realize he's still living next door to you. And if he's a vampire, 
is going to kill you in the middle of your sleep. You know, I'm just saying, these are some things, some some considerations. So if you have a vampire living next door, you, you need to think about that. Read the vampire rule book. Uh, and this one hits all the tropes. So let me dive into those. The grotesque, dark subject matter, obviously, it's vampires. And then that also covers the supernatural and or creatures. Because the vampire has to be one of the most, if not the most recognizable creature uh, in horror films. And another interesting thing about vampires is that the vampire is heavily associated with the gothic. I mean, if you go back to Bram Stoker's Dracula, 18, I want to say 97. Why do I not know that? I feel ashamed that I don't know when it came out. But I had the book. I read it almost once a year, at least, or every couple of years. And it is true gothic horror. Um, and even though it was probably called a gothic romance back in the day, make, make no bones about it, it's gothic horror. But that's where we get our our current idea of what a vampire should be, you know, because obviously the Lon Chaney version was inspired by, you know, I would I'd say loosely kind of based on Stoker's novel. Uh, Stoker's novel. I'm not a huge fan of the Bela Lugosi version. I think I mentioned this during that first episode. The, my favorite Dracula is Gary Oldman from Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's my favorite version because he played almost all the versions that were in the book. That's what I loved about it. But going back to Fright Night, um, this movie really leans into the gothic. I mean, the house next door to Jerry, uh, the house next door, excuse me, to Charlie uh, is an older house that it seemingly stood vacant for a while. I mean, they kind of, they didn't really say that in the backstory, but you can kind of get the sense that there had been nobody there. Or maybe Charlie does say that at some point in time. And he's, him and his mom were talking about who moved in. But the house itself is a character because it is a gothic mansion. It's big. It's spooky. Multiple windows. There's always shutters, of course, because they're trying to keep out the light. And if you look at almost any vampire movie, especially featuring Dracula or Dracula's Brides or whatever, probably from the before the 80s, you know, in the 80s and all the way back to 1931, they all have these spooky houses or ca- and or castles. And so they really leaned into that in Fright Night. And there was a sense of isolation that, you know, Charlie, he lived next door to the vampire, but nobody believed him when he said there's a vampire living do- next door. I mean, Seriously, if you went to your neighbor or if you told your mom, dad, or your parents or your wife, your sister or whomever you live with, and you say, yeah, there's a vampire next door, you know they're going to laugh their ass off. You know they're going to laugh. So as the movie progresses, Charlie starts to feel remote and isolated from the people in his life because nobody in his life. Yeah, because nobody will believe him. And he's, you know, he's even goes to extremes where he has garlic all over his room and hanging around his neck and he's making steaks and he's thinking, you know, he's telling himself that I'm going to go over next door and stick the vampire during the day. And so he becomes more and more removed from people until he accepts help. And of course, that's where the suspense is. You know, the suspense and the tension are from what's going to happen. You know, is Charlie going to be, is Jerry Dandridge was, is the vampire's name. Is he going to kill Charlie? Or is he going to kill Charlie's friends? Or is he going to kill Charlie's mom? Or is he going to turn them into vampires? There is a person who gets turned, but I won't say who it is. 
Oh, actually, multiple people get turned. That's interesting. And of course, along with that, there's heightened and exaggerated emotions. And in this one, I think this is one of the ideal examples of, if you recall from my very first episode, and I think I continued to mention this, that there are women in distress is a trope that you see in lots of the gothic novels and movies and TV shows that has been, that's been going on probably since the 1700s. Um, but I changed that to say persons in distress because this is a great example. Charlie Brewster, he's a guy and he is the main person in distress. He's, he's the protagonist of the movie and he is the one that the vampire is confronting and, and, and Charlie feels it's his duty, but he's also threatened by the vampire and the vampire tells basically, uh, tells him in no uncertain terms that he's, you know, either you forget about me or basically I'm going to kill everybody that you know. So he's in distress. Um, and there's no psychic connection in this film. You know, the vampire and him, they don't share a link or anything. There is, oh, okay, I take that back. There is a psychic connection, but it is between Jerry Dandridge, the vampire, and somebody that he turns. I'll say that. And they never say how old the vampire is, Jerry Dandridge is. We can assume that he's been around for several hundred years, um, but we're never really told that. Now, there is a sequel to Fright Night, Fright Night 2, which is actually really good. I think it came out in 1990. So you're thinking five years later and Charlie's moved on and he's in therapy and he thinks that he's been convinced that what he and uh, Roddy McDowell's character went through, Peter Vincent, that it was all uh, in his mind, which of course it wasn't. I don't want to spoil that movie, but what you, you can watch the movie on YouTube. I found the entire movie on YouTube, not YouTube TV, but just on YouTube. You can watch it for free. I don't know why it's under for free, but I would watch it. So if you like Fright Night, then if you want to see more adventures of Charlie and Peter Vincent, watch Friday Night 2. And let me say something about Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent is the host of the horror show Fright Night. And he ends up becoming best friends with Charlie, basically. And I love it because Roddy McDowell has been in, he's been in lots of horror, he, the late Roddy McDowell. He was fantastic. Uh, some people would might know him more from the Planet of the Apes series, the ones that started in the 60s, because he played... Uh, I want to say, oh my, Cornelius is the name of the ape. And then I think he also played his son, Caesar. And then they kind of built that iteration up into the, the movies, the, the apes trilogy movies that came out uh, in the 2000s. But uh, Rodney McDowell is a fantastic actor, stage and screen. He was, he's one of my favorite actors. And he, the character he played was a vampire hunter in the movies who has to become a vampire hunter in real life. So I love that, love what they did there. And his name, Peter Vincent, it, uh, I don't know if you call that an anagram, it's just, it was two names. He was named for um, Peter Cushing, one of the famous actors in the vampire in Dracula movies, and also for Vincent Price another famous horror actor. So if you've never heard of Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, he was named Peter Vincent. So I thought that was just so clever that uh, Tom Holland did that. And Tom Holland wrote the screenplay. So hats off to Tom Holland. I hope to one day have Tom Holland on the show because I'd love to pick his brain about this. But for both of these movies, I love that they, that they lean into the darkness. They kind of lean into the camp and the melodrama. And if you know anything about gothic 
some of the gothic novels uh, from the 1700s uh, and moving onward and uh, lots of gothic movies there I think there's like a there is a level of not camp but there is a level of melodrama that kind of like an undercurrent in a lot of these uh, media that um, that I think sometimes is is missed or maybe people don't don't realize and with both of these films you can sense that melodrama there right in the surface because you think okay the concept in and of in and of itself is pretty funny I mean a vampire living next door to you or a guy who can create a serum and bring people to life but both films work in that context and I think the other reason these films are also great is just because if you look at them they're kind of a time capsule of the 80s the fact that they were released in the same year and I don't know if filmmakers and writers were thinking about uh, maybe some of the sort of gothic tropes that they'd seen when they were growing up in some of the 30s and the 40s maybe even the 50s and then thought that oh you know I'll apply those to the film that I'm making but for some reason it just works I mean and again I don't know why I didn't I never noticed this but for me both of these movies are great examples of gothic horror and um, I also want to say that you know there are also just great examples of the gothic and I think that might be what I'm talking about because I'm not always talking about horror now of course these two are horror but when I start talking about films that are not horror I'm, I'm still thinking about the gothic in in uh, in relation to those films so that's all I have for today I just wanted to share these two two of my favorite movies from the 80s and again they were on my list and I wanted to come back to them before it took too much time so um, again if you like what I'm doing here and you know this show is going to evolve and I'll get better I hope I get better um, but if you don't like it please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and that will help the show grow and I just want to continue to bring you just to entertain you and to hopefully make, make you say oh you know what I'm going to go check that movie out because you know for lots of us Movies aren't everything and shows aren't everything, but sometimes it's a good way to distract yourself from, you know, the realities of the day to day, just like reading a good book. So thank you as always, fellow Gothics. And remember, be kind to one another. <laughs>